0: My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello everyone. My name is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com and you're listening to the trainfully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to our YouTube channel. The handle is Train Fully. We have a ton of content about sports medicine and performance training for golfers. Also give me a follow on Instagram. My handle is at Elastic Golfer. All right, now for a lot of us, golf is in a bit of an off season. So this gives us an opportunity to first of all address any injuries that may have developed during the season but also to optimize our mobility improve our neuromuscular control and movement quality and enhance our strength and power because if we do all of that during the off season then we're going to be more durable next season and we're going to enhance our performance and play better golf and if we don't get injured And we play better, then we're going to have more fun, right? So, if you're looking for some guidance on how to do all of that, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. When you become a member of my inner circle, you get access to all of my golf fitness programs, including an off season program that will get you feeling better, moving better, and performing better than ever. And all the workouts come with follow along videos that you can either do in a gym. Or at home with minimal equipment. And if you don't want to follow the videos, that's fine. You can just print out the workouts. Not only that, but you also get full access to me because when you become a member, I become your rehab specialist and performance coach. So you can message me anytime on the app if you have any questions or if you need any help with any injuries or any guidance with any of the programs. So head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle today. All right. Now in this episode, we have Chris Finn from par for success joining us. Now, if you don't know, Chris, he's done a lot of research looking for the safest and most effective ways to enhance club head speed and golf performance. In fact, I often refer to his research when I'm designing programs for my clients. So he's done a lot of really good work. Now our conversation focuses primarily on performance enhancement and club head speed. So before we get into the episode, I want to introduce an important concept in performance training, and that is the strength continuum. Now, the purpose of the strength continuum is to help us develop athletic talent, and it can be applied to pretty much every sport. I'm going to show you how I apply it to golf. Now, the strength continuum has... Four zones going from left to right on the far left side of the continuum is what we call absolute strength. Okay, this is essentially how strong you are. Training to develop absolute strength involves moving heavy loads at a relatively low speed. So for golfers, a great way to increase absolute strength is with strength training, right? Doing exercises like deadlifts, squats, bench press, and seated rows. And developing absolute strength is important because it increases the maximum amount of force that you can exert. It's also the foundation for the rest of the continuum. And there's a ton of health benefits. Most people can thrive just by working on absolute strength. In fact, I recently did a presentation at Simon Fraser University, where I did a deep dive into how exercise and strength training can minimize and even counteract many of the negative effects of aging. And I'll be releasing that presentation as a podcast episode, as well as on YouTube, probably within the next few weeks. Okay, so if you want to learn more about high performance aging, stay tuned for that presentation. Next on the strength continuum is what we call strength speed. Okay, training to develop strength speed involves moving moderately heavy loads as fast as you can. So compared to absolute strength with strength speed, the load is lighter, but the movement is faster. And for golfers, a great way to develop strength speed is with medicine ball throws and developing strength speed is important because it improves your ability to exert the greatest possible force in the shortest time possible. So that means it improves your rate of force development and your impulse, both of which are really important for power production and club head speed. Now, next on the continuum is what we call speed strength. Okay, so the previous zone was strength speed. This zone is speed strength. Training to develop speed strength involves moving even lighter loads at even higher velocities. Okay, so compared to strength speed with speed strength, we reduce the load further, but we're performing the movements even faster. So we're moving at a very high velocity with speed strength exercises. Now for golfers, a great way to develop speed strength is with exercises like a counter movement jump or overload swings. And developing speed strength is important because it enhances your ability to absorb and transmit forces very rapidly. And then finally, on the far right side of the continuum is what we call absolute speed. Okay, so with absolute speed, there's minimal load. So the intensity is really low, but the speed is very high. So for golfers, this is where you're swinging your driver at the driving range or playing golf. Or for those of you that do overspeed training, this is where you do your overspeed swings. Training to develop absolute speed is important because it improves your ability to access your full potential of speed. Okay. So that's the strength continuum. Again, going from left to right, absolute strength, strength, speed. Speed, strength, absolute speed. And again, as we move down the spectrum from absolute strength to absolute speed, the loads become lighter and the movements become faster. Okay, so then how do we use the strength continuum? Well, we use it to increase the effectiveness of our training programs. And I'm going to show you now how I use it to increase a golfer's club head speed. In order to increase your club head speed, you need to generate more power, okay? So we need to increase your power. But power is a little funny because it's the product of force and velocity, right? Power equals force times velocity. So if we just chase power and we don't chase which variable or which zone of the strength continuum that you actually need, then we could be chasing the wrong thing. We could be chasing a neuromuscular adaptation that you don't really need. Here's an example. Let's say a golfer reaches out to me and they want to increase their distance off the tee by 15 yards. In order to do that, they're going to have to increase their club head speed by about five miles per hour, right? Every mile per hour increase in club head speed equals about three yards. They've been playing golf pretty much their entire life but they've never really done any strength training. Okay. So let's apply the strength continuum to this golfer and find out what zone of the strength continuum we should focus on. First of all, what zone have they been working in? Absolute speed, right? Swinging their driver and playing golf. In fact, that's all they've been doing. They haven't done any work in any of the other zones. So for this guy, I'm going to bring him all the way over to the absolute strength end of the spectrum and introduce some strength training. Remember, absolute strength is the foundation for the rest of the continuum. So by doing some strength training, we're going to increase the amount of force that they can exert and enhance that force variable in the power equation and therefore increase their power output. And we'll get some pretty good results by doing that. In fact, we might even get the 15 yards just by doing some strength training and making sure their mobility is optimized. So it's really effective and it's really quite simple. But what if a golfer reaches out to me wanting another 15 yards and they already have a good foundation of absolute strength? They've been well-trained. They've been doing a lot of strength training. What do we do then? Well, for this golfer, focusing on absolute strength and just getting stronger isn't really going to do very much to improve their power since power is a product, right? It's not just all about force. So for this golfer, it's easier to increase power by enhancing the velocity variable of the power equation. In fact, once a person has a good foundation of absolute strength, the most effective way to increase power is by working on strength, speed, and speed strength. In fact, ideally, this is where we spend most of our time once a person is well trained. Now, I mentioned earlier that I like using exercises like medicine ball throws for strength speed and counter movement jumps and overload swings for speed strength. But I also use bands and I still use conventional lifts as well, primarily squats, deadlifts, pull-ups or rows, and chest press. It's just that when we're working on strength speed or speed strength, we perform these conventional lifts at a lower percentage of the golfers one rep maximum, and at a higher velocity. Okay, so for example, if we're working on strength speed, we're typically working at 60% of the golfers one rep maximum. And if we're working on speed strength, we're at 30%. And again, as the load gets lighter, the movements become faster. All right, so now I want you to think about which golfer best describes you. If you're somebody who hasn't really done a lot of strength training, the best way for you to increase club head speed is by beginning a properly periodized strength training program and improving your absolute strength. But once you have a good foundation of absolute strength, the best way to increase club head speed further is by working on strength speed and speed strength. And again, guys, If you're a member of my inner circle, all of this programming is done for you. So you don't have to try to figure it all out and piece it together yourself. And in the new year, we're going to have new programs that focus specifically on strength, speed, and speed strength, things that you can do both in a gym and at home with minimal equipment. again, guys, if you're looking to increase club head speed, this type of training will really take your game to a whole other level. So head over to trainfully.com and sign up today if you haven't already. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our guest in this episode, Chris Finn, has done a lot of really great research looking at the most effective ways to increase club head speed, right? So looking at which exercises and specifically which tests correlate best with club head speed. And he and his team at Par for Success have now taught thousands of medical, fitness, and golf professionals about their research. In fact, in 2016 and 2018, they were selected as a feature speaker at the World Golf Fitness Summit hosted by Titleist. All right, so if you're near Raleigh, North Carolina, I recommend checking out their training facility in Morrisville, and also check out their website, parforsuccess.com. Now, guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, so joining us today is Chris Finn from Par for Success. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: So I'm sure most everybody listening has come across your work somewhere, whether that was an article you wrote or a podcast you've been on or, or some of the research you've done. But for those who haven't, can you please introduce yourself and, and tell us why you got into golf performance?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so I started, you know, actually my origin, I guess, was as a, I was a strength and conditioning coach. Um, that's how I kind of paid my way through uh, physical therapy school. Um, I did, you know, the. And any of your other trainers out there, I feel you with the 4am to 8am and then go do, you know, go, and then I went to class and then you'd come back and you'd work, you know, the 6pm to 9pm and then get up and do it all over again. So so that was kind of where I came from was, you know, just kind of the big box world. And then I went into physical therapy and I was in the, you know, the, the PT mill where you'd see 25 people a day and, you know, hopefully you helped one of them. Right. Um, and so really, uh, out of college, I, I started, I went to a, a local university hospital here in North Carolina, and was seeing 20-something people a day, and I was like, all right, you know, very quickly, I just, let's just put it this way, I, uh, I, I'm i in the uh, ACC region of uh, Duke, Carolina State, it's, it's apparently not looked uh, well upon Thomas. if you refer a patient from one of those universities to another one, um, I didn't understand that being from up north, and uh, long story short, I was written up and decided I needed to go do my own thing so <laughs> so, so that's where really when I, I said you know I looked at it you know I, I had gotten into golf I was addicted to it um you know I got certified you know TPI and that sort of stuff back in the you know right around probably 2009 2010 and uh you know, I just kind of went out and started try and do my own thing and and really part for success the origin of it really and it continues today of really the I'd say like the heartbeat of what we do and the, all of the research the reason we do it is I think I'm a skeptic at heart. And then I was learning about all golf I was like, this is a bunch of baloney. There's no way any of this works. And I, you know, I'm my mother, I drive her nuts saying, well, show me why how, prove it to me. Right. So, I, you know, I'd go to these conferences. Well, prove it. How, how do you know that? And then what's your sample size? What's your, you know, and, and the answers I were getting were definitely, um, suboptimal for my skepticism, my kind of my skeptic, uh, just personality. And so I went out and I said, well, you know what, I'm not going to be a good employee. So if I'm going to do something, I might as well try to make something work. And so the reason we actually started recording is because I didn't think it was going to work. That's the reason we started testing people is because I was like, well, if I'm going to ask people for money, I want to make sure I can help them. And, um, you know, fast forward to today. And, you know, we've got, we've tested five, 6,000 golfers and it's really, it has all stemmed from this kind of curiosity and, and skepticism of, well, that's cool that you said that worked how do I know that's going to work for this other person? And as I got deeper and deeper into it, you know, we'll obviously dive into some of the stuff we've, we've worked on and, and share that with everybody. But it really came from, you know, I'd have like a 55, 60 year old guy come on and be like, Hey, we test him, And you he, Oh, you're swinging 95 miles an hour. And he'd be like, cool. Is that good? And I'd be like, I don't know. Let me see what I can pull out of my rear end. I don't know. Like, yeah, sure. That's good. Or, or wait, I want you to buy, I want you to buy sessions with me. No, that's terrible. We need to get you better. Right. And so it, I was totally just BSing my way through it in the beginning, but, you know, it was kind of throw a lot of stuff at the wall. Let's track it. Let's see what works. And, uh, and then we continue that today, you know, every new team member we bring in the first thing I always say to him, is, there's only one, I'm pretty laid back, dude. The only thing that really will ever get me mad is if you had a better way to do it and you didn't tell us. And so we could test it. Um, you know, I never want to hear, you know, our philosophy is we never want to hear, you know the reason why do you do it this way oh it's just cuz the way we've always done it like that's not acceptable like there has to be a reason why and and that's kind of the genesis of where we came from and you know we'll keep doing that until we die
0: yeah and and I want to get into some of your research now and I want to begin with the the 6 week eccentric flywheel study you did before you you give us the results though can you explain what a flywheel is what your goal with the study was and how you designed the study
1: yeah, this is probably one of my favorites, um, and, and it came from, uh, we had done prior to this a, a two-year study, just collecting tons of data and looking at different strength training protocols on adults and kids. Uh, the two in particular that ended up, we ended up really looking at were uh, what we would call traditional training, where you know anyone who's weight lifted, you start, you do your three sets of 10, let's say at 100 pounds, then you drop it to three sets of eight, but maybe you go up to 110 pounds and then three sets of six and maybe you go to 120, right? So you get more weight as the volume goes down. So that was kind of the what I, we'll call traditional, and then we looked at triphasic training, which was uh, where you would take you know a period of of time, you know four or six weeks, you know you can do whatever phase you want, but we would look at hey what if we just train the lowering part of the squat or the eccentric, you know thinking of golf your backswing could be called kind of an eccentric stretching you know, for all of you trainers out there. And I know that some stuff shortens, but we're just being general here. <laughs> so we think of kind of that as like, you know, the, the eccentric or the the stretching of the tissue while we're putting load on it. And then there's the, you know, the pause um, before you'd come up from the squat, right? So that's the isometric. And then as you, when you explain, explode up, that's the concentric. So if we think of those three phases of movement, we, we looked at kind of training each of those with a focus, uh, and, 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 uh, kind of continuous phases versus traditional. And what we found was that particularly for the older golfer, um, you know, 40 plus that triphasic training was like bounds in a ways more effective than traditional training. It actually was flipped to the opposite for juniors. So from that, that, that was the genesis of this flywheel study was, well, shoot, if we know that eccentric and kind of like triphasic phasic training really is beneficial for golfers and, and to the tune of, you know, 60% better return on club head speed compared to traditional. But what happens if we just look at eccentric rotate, you know, overload and how could we do that in a rotational manner? Right. Cause there's, you know, at that time, this was probably 2017, 18, or maybe it was 18, 19, you know, there's Instagrams run wild of people throwing med balls and doing all this rotary stuff. And, you know, the sling thing that's wrote. And it's like, okay, like it works on Instagram. quote Right. But the, does it actually work? Like let's test it. So, so that's where we, um, you what know, a fly a flywheel is. It actually was invented like in the 50s uh, for astronauts, so they could get load on their tissue without having gravity. So if you think about it, like if basically the harder you pull the strap, it kind of wraps around this this wheel. The harder you pull it, it then when it gets to the end of the you know end of the line, it basically then pulls back harder. So the harder you pull, the harder it pulls you back, and the eccentric overload occurs from you having to resist that pull back. So if we think of you know, if you if you're holding a you know, everyone's done a cable rotation, right? Where you hold hold the cable out in front of you and you rotate to your left, then come back to the middle, and then you go back to the left. So with a flywheel, you'd pull hard to the left, and then you'd have to resist it as it pulls it's gonna, the wheel's gonna pull you back harder to the right, and you got to kind of slow it down to then you know move it, you know, back to the other direction. So this study, we actually what we looked at was we had a couple groups. We had one group who was using the flywheel rotationally uh compared to this other group that was using kind of your traditional like cable machines and medicine balls uh bands and then you had another group that was doing um their flywheel can be used rotationally it also can be used to resist like squats and deadlifts type movements so up and downs Um, so we had another group that used it for that those and instead of using barbells for squatting or hinging so we kind of had these a control group and then a group we wanted to see this flywheel you know we at that point we knew it worked with barbells traditional movements eccentric work did it work you know was there a difference if we could we use is the flywheel better than barbells you know for squatting and hinging or is it better than bands and the other traditional rotational stuff that to that point we'd been using and you know thought we were getting success with um so that that was kind of the genesis of it and that's how we broke up the the different
0: groups to kind of see what shook out and then so what happened so I'll just reiterate here so there's three groups the big difference between the three groups is first of all the the control group didn't do any flywheel training the second group used the flywheel for the rotational exercise and then the third group used the flywheel for their their big lifts the exactly. chest press the squats deadlift and bent over row okay so- exactly
1: so it was the same program the only thing that we interchanged in and out was the implement of the flywheel or not right and then so then what did you find Yeah. So it was, it was really cool, Thomas, because I think a lot of times when you think of research, you think of like, I want you know, as, as the researcher, you're like, I want to find something that's statistically significant. Like it's like nerd cool. Right. Um, But, but I think, you know, what sometimes gets lost is that and what I've kind of learned and we've learned as a team is sometimes having nothing be different is actually a cooler finding. And particularly when it comes to application, you know, in the field to golfers, to, you know, to, to clinicians, those sorts of things. So, Basically, what we found was with the K-Box group, so that was the group that was doing the squats, the deadlifts, the presses with the flywheel instead of the barbell, there statistically was no difference compared to the group that was just using barbells. So we looked at the control group who was just using barbells, you know, it was like 1.4% uh, average club head speed change. The group who was using the flywheels was like 1.6%. So raw was a little bit higher, but if you go looking at it statistically, there really wasn't a big difference. Um, so what that, the cool thing of that, or the takeaway from that is basically that if you're on the road, you know, a flywheel can be a, a lot more portable. We particularly, we use it with our tour players. A barbell doesn't fit very good in a, you know, a really small compact car, particularly for those developmental players who are driving all over the country. A flywheel can travel. Um, so you can actually get the same results with a flywheel and with those big three as you can with the, you know, with the, with the barbell. So that, that was a pretty cool finding, um, you know, obviously in relation to clubhead speed change. The really cool one, though, was when we looked at the actual group that was using the K pulley to do the uh, the rotational training. And when they did that, then we actually saw uh, basically a 2x return on club head speed. So almost 3% change. If we looked at the raw numbers, it went from like 1.2 miles an hour average change in the control and the, I think the K box trip was like 1.3, so pretty much like just over a mile an hour. It went to over two and a half miles an hour, like 2.6. So we're talking like almost three miles an hour gain versus you know, one mile an hour gain in the group that was using rotational eccentric overload training, which was like holy, like that's that's like almost three three miles an hour is like that's like ten yards, you know, depending on you know if you hit it well and whatnot. So that's that's extremely significant. Uh, and it was, it kind of, and it made sense building off of the findings that we had done in those first couple of years where the eccentric strength training, you know, and the fact that you can really train the, you know, anterior chain, posterior chain, you know, squatting, deadlifting pretty well with barbells. So it makes sense that there wouldn't be that big of a difference, but it's really hard to get an eccentric overload with a cable, right? (laughs) Unless unless you have a buddy who helps you walk it out and then you got to like slowly, you know, bring it in. So it made a lot of sense, like scientifically and physiologically, Um, and it was such a cool takeaway for us that you know now we're we're building a new facility, we're putting two, three of these you know the eccentric K pulleys in there, um, just because they're so useful. And and as a gym owner, like everybody wants to use it, all of our clients, and we right now we only have one, and it's like it becomes a like a blockage, right? Because everyone's trying to get the cool the cool toy. So um, it really is it's is something that we have found that was significantly. Uh, helpful to golfers in gaining club head speed and doing it safely.
0: Yeah. And when I saw, when I read the study, I was really happy to see the results because um, you know, as I was telling you earlier, I have a lot of people, they reach out to me, they have pain near their rib cage. They have pain kind of on the side or front of their abdomen or on their side above their pelvis, kind of into the low back. And when we Mm -hmm. do an assessment and this is on the trail side and we do an assessment, we oftentimes find that they have, A muscle strain in their external oblique, and for the listeners, eccentric contractions are a standard protocol for for muscle strains, and Mm -hmm. rotational exercises are a great way to target the external oblique. So, if somebody has a muscle strain in their external oblique, you know, standard procedure to do eccentric rotations to strengthen that muscle and and to help it recover, and then also to build injury resilience because that injury I, I see it so often. Eccentric trunk rotations have become a standard exercise in pretty much all of my my clients' uh, uh, programs to build injury resilience. But now you've shown that by doing this exercise, not only are you making your obliques more robust, you're also increasing club head speed, which is awesome, right? So that means this exercise is awesome. And, you know, everybody should be doing probably some variation of it. And I want to talk about how to program this stuff now a little bit. And I do have a couple questions about just how, how you set the study up. Yeah. What was the t- tempo you used for the exercises?
1: Yeah. So it was really, you know, from the exercises we went with kind of a self limiting, uh, well, sorry, for the uh, eccentric in the um, you know, group that was using barbells, generally we did about a five second descent. So we tell people five, we tell people seven knowing that they'll actually do like five right (laughs) this is this is the art of 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 program design is you tell them seven you you know you're gonna get somewhere between three to five um so so those that was those were the tempos um you're laughing so i know you you know what i'm talking about uh right particularly that first one that's like a solid five seconds by the time you get to like rep five it's like dude did you even like (laughs) did you look like (laughs) it looked like one to one (laughs) (laughs) it's like you came up faster than <laughs> or slower than when you went down. Um, so that that so that we always try to shoot kind of for that five second is kind of what we have found is was successful for us. Um in the early days we'd tell people three to five, and then we realized what they would actually do. So now we say five to seven second descents. Um in terms of on the flywheels, we would basically just tell them. Um, so we think of rotationally, like if they had uh, both arms straight out, like on a straight bar, right? And so it's, let's say the, the pulleys kind of to your right. So you're, you're rotating left to pull it out. Uh, we tell you basically, you know, you know, rip it as hard as you can, get it going. And then uh, what we want you to do is stop so that that arm, that right arm, which is, you know, so, you, you know, the pulleys to your right, we want to stop when that right arm is straight out from your, from your hip, kind of straight out in front of you. So basically trying to force them to, to decel as quickly as possible, off of that rebound, off the pull. So that's where we would find that when we, you know, using the K meter, um, you know, on the eccentric K pulley, there's a meter so you can actually measure what your concentric, like how much, uh, how many watts of power you output going, you know, when you pull it out, and then how much do you exert when you're slowing it down. And we basically you'd have it, you know, the iPad there, and you'd, you, know, you're trying to get the, you know, explain to the to the client, you want that eccentric number to be as high as possible relative to the lower to the concentric or the, the contraction pulling out. Um, so those, those were kind of the tempos that we use in those. What was
0: the tempo for the pneumatic cable machine when you weren't doing that eccentric flywheel rotation? Yep.
1: So we, so we just coached it of just rotate. So it's basically kind of one-to-one, you know, as most people would do it. Right. So we, we, we kept it as as we had been coaching it prior in all the years. And as we would see in kind of the normal, you know, I guess the, the made main, the, the, the
0: mainstream, <laughs> you know, golf fitness uh, realm. And then in the study, there's three different types of resistance. We have weight, which is provided by the barbells. We have air pressure from the pneumatic cable machine, and we have inertia from from the flywheel. So because there's three different types of resistance, how did you measure intensity and keep it consistent across the different types of resistance?
1: Yeah, great question. So throughout the program, we would um, basically we coach a lot of our athletes well we put in particular like barbell like we can we measure their maxes and so you can put in their percentages um, but what we always tell people because obviously you know that you know you've been training long enough 80 percent of your max isn't always 80 percent of your max depending if you slept two hours last night and you just got off a of red eye right so it's it's kind of we we'll, we always would um, correlate that to kind of an RPE or like hey I want you to feel like you got two good ones left in the tank or feel like, you know, you, that, that was your last good tech technical rep. So, um, so it was uh, on the weights. It was definitely, it was percentage based. Um, and it was, they were both groups were coached because we didn't have necessarily a weight because the flywheel is, is particularly is more uh, as well as the pneumatic device are going to be a little bit more RPE or <laughs> how hard you pull out is going to impact how, a little more self-limiting. Um, that's where we would say, Hey, we want to make sure that when you get to the last rep, that you have, you know, two left or, you know, and we, so we would coach the RPEs equivalent across the three groups. Um, obviously with the barbells, it was easier because we knew what the weight should be, but it would also allow us to adjust, um, kind of on the fly. If somebody just wasn't feeling it that day or, you know, they
0: played golf six days in a row and they were exhausted. So, so the, for the people listening, RPE is ratings of perceived exertion. So basically you guys are going like a seven or eight out of 10 in terms of effort with that
1: yeah yeah so like yeah if we were like you know an eight out of ten is like hey like go like you got like one to two reps left in the tank that are good quality and typically that's how that's pro. That's usually the most that we'll do other than test week we'll say we'll do a three we do three rep maxes um or you know and if they're like oh, i might have had one more we're like okay we're good like yeah. we're not we're not we're not testing for the olympic trials here <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <it's> close <laughs> enough that gives us a good general enough idea of where you're at
0: so then, for the people listening, if they're if you know they don't have access to a flywheel or they're not looking to maybe invest in one, um, how would you? And they're going to be doing this exercise, the rotational exercise, with a, a cable machine in the gym or with bands. Um, how would you recommend they perform that exercise to try to get as close as they can to that eccentric stimulus that the flywheel is giving?
1: Yes, that's a great question. So I think the first thing is, is that uh, if you're listening, I hope you're friendly and that you can make friends at the gym, because that's usually this is usually the best recommendation. Um, it's, it's a, if you don't have any friends at the gym, it's a great way to meet people. Um, it's generally the idea of the eccentric right when you pull out is that it's going to pull back harder. So, you know, if you think of, you know, if you got two hands on the, let's say you're using one of the handles on the cable machine, and let's say you can only pull out, I don't know, 50 pounds right if you get a a, you make a new you've made your new friend you guys are 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 bros now and 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 you 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 put it at 70 pounds say hey can you help me just get it out to the end range of the rotation and then you know just then they basically would let go then you have to slowly try to control that back to the start and then you can have them do that again now if you can't make friends or there's no one else in the gym the other option would be kind of we say you kind of grab it hold it in close to your chest walk it out and then try to kind of you know Get get to you know just parallel and then rotate it back in. Um, so, but making friends is always it's it's mutually beneficial. helps helps your club head speed and now you got a buddy to, to spot you at
0: the gym. Yeah, and my so you, that's a really good point. And I never really thought about that so much is you could have if you have that if your hands are by your chest, the moment arm is a lot shorter, so it's going to take a lot less effort on your part to keep that sort of stabilized and and to keep that sort of in an anti rotational um position so you could load that up have your hands by your chest and then extend your arms increase that moment arm and then resist it coming back so that
1: yeah 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 because i think that's that's a when people think about rotational work they they don't a lot of times don't think about the what's the weak point in the system and for most people the weak point in the system is the shoulder you know obviously there's it's the most mobile joint up there um so yeah by shortening that lever arm having it closer to your chest does you know and inherently allow you to put more load out there and then you can kind of preset it and then slowly try to, you know, unload it, you know, eccentrically.
0: So then when I program this stuff, usually we're looking at two to four sets, six to 12 reps, obviously as the reps go down, the intensity goes up, the RP goes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're usually aiming for the three to four second contraction. That's because we're thinking of it in terms of the, um, the, the, the muscle strain side of things. Uh, rest interval 30 seconds all the way up to two to three minutes depending on you know how much the intensity what what the load is what the resistance is and then whether or not we're trying to stimulate some sort of hypertrophy as well in the muscle and we're doing that two to four days a week is that similar to what you guys are doing as well so,
1: so yeah, so everything that you were, that, that you said sounds pretty close to what we do. The only thing that we do, we will periodize it throughout the year. So we will do something like if we're working on, like if we're doing speed work, we'll go real light and have somebody do like speed reps. Um, if we're going for in a max strength phase, we'll really load it and we may only have them do three to five reps. Um, so we basically will treat it as, you know, as anything else, you know, squatting or deadlifting and we just mirror it so that it matches the phase that we're in. So if we're, you know, we're in getting into the off season now. We'll go into a bit of hypertrophy phase. You know, in North Carolina, it's kind of you know, "quote unquote" off season. not as bad as off season is from the Northeast where I'm from. But you know, then as you get closer to the season, you're going to go faster and heavier, and you know, and you kind of periodize it that
0: way. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So, I want to move on now to some of the other the stuff you've done here, and and. Um, I find the correlations you found between some of the tests that you use, the vertical jump test, seated chest pass, the shot put and the Kaiser rotation, the correlations between those tests and club head speed to be really interesting and to give us some really good insight as to, you know, some things we should be working on in the gym. So maybe can you dive into that data a little bit now?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the, you know, I think our initial data that when we were looking at the data sets is probably coming up to 2020. Those were kind of the big four that we saw. Had the we didn't have enough, we didn't have a big enough database to statistically be able to draw um, causational relationships, but we were starting to see some strong correlations, right? So and everyone listening doesn't know that means correlation means that if one goes up, the other we typically are seeing that go up to causational means, hey, if you want. A to go up, you need to increase B because B makes A go up, right? So um so we didn't have enough sample size up, you know, to 2020. where you know, I think we were only at probably two or three, two or three thousand people at that point. Um, uh, and it wasn't this just the numbers weren't showing. So we the correlation, so we were really kind of focused on like what you said, the shot put, the big three from a power standpoint were shot put, uh seated chest pass and vertical leap. Uh and this was before we had force plates, so we were just looking at raw number, how high somebody could jump. Um, and then we would also look at, um, the, uh, the Kaiser. So this is, we were, this was our attempt to, can you somehow, me- everyone's looking at all the, Hey, rotation's important. Can you somehow measure it? <laughs> and so, so we did this test where we actually, we made it up where you laid on your back, uh, flat on your back. You held the, we use the pneumatic air pressure. You hold your arms straight up interlocked. And we had the, the handle through, via a string to a, like a wood stick into a water bottle. So that if the person fell the water bottle would fall and that's how we try that's how we standardize the inter and intra-radar reliability of it and uh and so we had that was probably i think it was like a 0.6 oh. r value for correlation so it was actually pretty high yeah.
0: um, it, but it, then our, over 0.5 is pretty good
1: yeah so that when that was the lowest one the others were all like 0.8 point close to getting close to 0.9 so that's we took all of that data and then we you know, and that we kept collecting, kept collecting, and then we got to the, you know, probably end of 2020 into 21. and we, we were able to actually look at these and run some more complex. We got smarter and figured out how to run all these other statistical tests and stuff. <laughs> um, so we've, we, that's what we found. Our biggest limitations is our smarts and lack thereof. But, um, but that's where we got to the point where then we actually looking at the statistical comparisons, and the inter and relationships and all that, that the the anti-rotation test and the shot put actually, while they were correlatory, they were not causatory. So meaning like you, if you got better at, if you didn't get better at the chest pass or the vertical, you probably weren't going to get better at the at the shot put. So they were kind of a, you know, if you think of the shot put test, you know, if you break it down, it's a, it's a push movement with one arm and a lot of lower leg vertical explosion. So it would make sense. So vertical and upper body push power kind of combine into the chest pass. So um, what's what we found is we've gotten more and more data is the, the testing we do gets a lot cleaner, <laughs> it becomes a lot quicker. Um, and so that's where we've, you know, at this point, the caus- causationally The uh, seated chest pass and the um, vertical leap are the two big ones in particular on the vertical leap. It's looking at, um, you know, not just how high you jump, but how much force you produce, um, which we we can do that obviously now very accurately with force plates. Um, But then also, you know, for example, if you have a 200 pound guy and a hundred pound person, they both jump 12 inches the 200 pound guy had to put more force into the ground to get to that twelve inches than the hundred pound person. Um, So, 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 you know, mass does matter. So, uh, but those are definitely the two that we've seen at this point that actually you get that have a causational impact on club at speed.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about the causational, because I mean, obviously when you look at the, the correlations that kind of confirms that we should be looking at like, you know, vertical power, horizontal push power, and then the rotational push powers in there as well. Um, and then you can kind of reverse engineer those tests a little bit and and come up with some exercises and some programming that's going to enhance the athlete's ability to to perform well on those tests but I, you know it's an interesting thing about kind of getting fixated on the tests and, and it's a little bit different cuz you have found some some causation there with the vertical jump and and the the push but I'll tell you a quick story here uh, when I first started working in the field I had the opportunity to work with a lot of really elite hockey players and um, some NHL guys and some of the best like 16, 17 and 18 year olds in the world who are getting ready to transition into the NHL. And at 18, they have to go through the NHL combine, right? And so there's this battery of tests, just like the NFL combine a battery of tests that they have to go through and how well they perform on these tests can impact where they get selected in the draft, right? And so we know what the tests are. And so we would practice the tests and, you know, some of the guys we got at 14 and we would start practicing these tests specifically, not even just to to enhance the athleticism necessarily, but just to get them really, really good at these tests so that they could perform well during the combine and, you know, hopefully get drafted higher. But when we did that, when we set time aside to practice the tests, we knew that we weren't necessarily enhancing their hockey performance when we're doing that, right. We're not necessarily making them better hockey players. We're just making them really, really good at this test. And so my, my point is there's a fine line um, between just practicing a test. Now for, for you, you found some causation between the vertical jump and that push. And so that should be part of, you know, if somebody's looking, if they have the ability and, you know, don't have any injuries and things like that, that should be in people's programs. If they're looking to increase club head speed, but there should also be attention paid to a properly designed program that's just going to enhance the athlete's ability to jump higher rather than just practicing the jump higher. I think sometimes people just get fixated You know, for the listeners. OK, I just have to jump and jump and jump and I'm going to get the ball farther. It doesn't really work necessarily like that. <laughs>
1: uh, I think my favorite example, Thomas, is we had a uh, when we were doing the shot put, we had a, an older gentleman. He's been a member here oh shoot, I don't know, six, he's been here eight years now, I think, this so he's probably four years in, and he's like literally every day after class, he's grabbing a med ball and he is shot putting, shot putting in the, in the, in the gym, right, like you just knew, At the end of class, Dennis was shot putting, and then when we found out that it didn't have a causational relationship to club head speed, it was kind of like, you know, nose goes, I'm not telling Dennis that that doesn't work, <laughs> I'm not doing it, <laughs> but he just, he just, he was so fixated on like the, I got a shot put up the better I get my shot put up. Right. And, and, you know, to your point, particularly in golf, you know, and I, this is where I always find it comical when, you know, on social media or whatever, when a tour player wins and everybody's like, Oh, well, it must've been the, the trainer. Like we don't, we don't have any impact on that. Like we just, our job on the physical side is I can make you swing the club faster. I can make sure you have the mobility to get from point A to point B and I can do my best to keep you from getting overuse injuries. Other than that, like, I'm just giving you a toolbox. It's on you and your swing code. And like, you have to be the one that actually the athlete has to be the one that puts it together and get to your point, like with the hockey players, obviously there's a, there's some financial gain. If you perform better on those tests, you, you can yeah. draft it. Right. That makes sense. I think in golf, we have this, this idea of like, Hey, if I, my club head speed goes up three miles an hour, I'm going to drop two strokes. Like, well, yeah, it depends. <laughs> um, and so it's just an important thing. And like, you know, Yes. We know that if you can improve your lower body push power, you're going to swing. You can swing the club faster. We know that if you increase your upper body push power, you can swing the club faster. Does that mean you're going to go from a 10 handicap to scratch? No. But it doesn't
0: hurt. It's (laughs) funny because we had uh, Colton Oston, uh, and he talked about he he got really fixed because, you know, he's so accurate, right? Both in his driving and his putting. And so he really got fixated on like, man, if I could get like another 30 yards, what would that Mm -hmm. do? And, um, I think it was somebody from Tyler's took him out. It was like, well, let's go see. So like hit, hit, one ball and then play that ball and then drop another ball, you know, you know, 30 yards ahead and see how you do. And he actually scored better with the shorter ball, with the yeah. without the distance. And so it kind of highlights, just like you say, I mean, there's a lot more to getting around the golf course than hitting the ball far. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of people do get fixated on that and so when you do see that data and you see the correlation between and then you see the causation with the vertical jump or rate of force development and the push how does that influence your decisions in terms of exercise selection and program design if somebody's like hey I want to increase club head speed how do you go about doing that
1: yeah I've heard that a few times Uh, (laughs) uh, yeah no I I think the first place we always start is, you, know, you mentioned it before, is, is how do you do it safely, right? And how do you do it so that, you know, our our goal at Parp Success is to be the best in the world of giving people longevity in the game of golf. Um, and for some people, that may mean speed. For I will tell you that 85% of people over 50 don't have full rotational mobility in, the, in one of the four main rotational centers. So if that is the case, like, I don't care about your speed right now. What I care about is, can I get your shoulders and your hips and your thoracic spine and your neck can we get them to the point where you are functionally able to rotate safely through those joints then we can look then we can look at what's your current club head speed related to what's your current power output because particularly if you're listening to this and you're a single digit handicap more than likely what we see is you're what we call a ticking time we've kind of categorized golfers in three categories you're a ticking time bomb and that either a you don't have the rotational mobility and you're trying to swing fast or B, let's say you're one of the unicorns over 50 who do have that, without just by happenstance. Then we look at, well, hey, you're already swinging the you know 75th percentile for your age group because we have that data now. But your power output's like literally in the 20th percentile. So if there's a big gap between where your current club head speed is and where your strength and power abilities are, you know, assuming that you have the mobility, well, I'm still not giving you over speed training or like we're we're not going to chase speed, but we're going to chase is closing that gap because closing that gap is going to decrease your injury risk. It's going to increase the likelihood you're going to be able to play this game for a lot of years. Oh, and by the way, there's icing on the cake where your club head speed probably is going to go up too. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and then if we get to where you're pretty balanced or even, you know, you, you get the, the random, the random, usually younger guys who are crazy powerful and flexible, but they swing the club like they're, you know, 90, you know, then at that point, then some transfer training or some, you know, some overspeed training can be like 25 miles an hour like that. I've seen that too. But it's really, it's, it's understanding everyone listening is not a nail. We don't need to bring a, a hammer to every single person out there listening. We have to assess and see what are you, what, what are your needs, understanding while understanding your goals, and then, you know, work together to put that program together to help you get where you need to go safely so that it's sustainable speed. You know, anybody, I could get a monkey, a monkey can train you to, to gain speed, Just just move it faster right? Like literally most golfers, if you just take your driver, swing it really fast, 30 times, three times a week, I guarantee you you're getting some speed, the art and the science. And what I believe is the most important thing. And the most under messaged kind of message is that it's not speed that you want. It's sustainable speed that you want. How can you sustain that as you age um, that? And that's by being able to do it safely and, and understanding your body and where your limitations are and helping you augment your strengths, but also while also you know, filling in those holes and gaps that you may have.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it's amazing too, how much people can improve their speed. So when somebody comes to me, like most of the people who reach out to me, it's because their, their shoulder hurts or their backwards or something hurts. Yep. Um, and then, so we just address, we fix that, that issue. And it's amazing to me when I first started working with golfers is like, well, you just fix up, you just fix the shoulder a little bit how much impact are like man my club head speed's gone up like 10 percent, and i'm hitting the ball like 30 yards further yeah. and we haven't done anything to we're just trying to make your shoulder feel better but so because your shoulder does feel better and you move it better and your hand path is now longer and you're more mm-hmm. consistent in 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 your path um you're hitting the ball better and so yeah i 100 percent agree is to to address those mobility issues and and deal with the injuries, the nagging stuff that, you know, you're trying to ignore. If you just deal with that quite often, your performance goes through the roof.
1: hundred percent. And I I don't think that gets shared and hammered in enough to people because it's not sexy, right? Oh, fix my shoulder. That's what I got (laughs) to do, right? It's way more sexy to like, Hey, I swing, I swung this implement and I gained 20 miles an hour in you know, two weeks, like, like, okay, well, I can tell you after looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of people, I've literally had one guy that came in and he was an ex- you know, division one basketball player, eight. He had mobility like a gymnast. He could jump 40 inches. He could throw the med ball like 40-something feet. And he swung 100 miles an hour. He was 32 at the time, right? I gave him some overspeed training and five minutes later, he was 125. That's the one human being
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> in which like there's a silver bullet like that. The majority of us listening right now, are more to what you were speaking of there's something we got to. There, there's your damaged goods a little bit you've had a, a life of sports and injuries and you're not moving the way that that you need to move to optimize you know your golf swing and for you to swing as fast as you can safely and um and while it's not as sexy it's not it's not it's it's predictable i guess and to me you know that's that's the exciting part is it's so predictable we have, you know, a lot of the data and the research. It's which one, you know, where where do you fit? What what do we know works based on what we're seeing? And let's just just go do what we ask you to do, and you're going to be
0: there. And, and you know that's interesting. And so let's let's focus in a little bit more now on the on the power training itself. Yeah. Um, let's assume that the person doesn't have any injuries, which I don't think I've ever had anybody reach out to me injuries. <laughs> but let's just say it's fun to live in unicorn world, Thomas. Let's do it. <laughs> But well, let's just say, you know, they don't have any injuries. Um, I, I should say I, I have like when people don't often reach out to me and say, hey, hey, Thomas, can you I want to increase my club heads? That's rarely ha- why they they reach out to me. They usually have a problem that, you know, like I said, an injury. But for the few people that that have reached out to me, they generally fall into like one of two categories is one. The person who, you know, they've been playing golf a long time. Um, they've never done any strength training right and so you know trying to train for power is is a funny thing because it's the product of force and velocity right power equals force times velocity and so if somebody has never done any strength training and then you introduce them to strength training and they can now you know increase the the value of that force variable in that power equation they get some really good results in club head speed but again it has to be with you know somebody who, who knows what they're doing so that you're not also getting stiffer and, you know, getting wear and tear on your joints. The other person that occasionally reaches out to, to me for, for club head speed is the person who actually has been strength training. They have a good amount of relative strength, but they've never converted that strength to speed. Right. And, and I think people who are well-trained and they have that, that good amount of relative strength for golf, they do better for increasing power by focusing more on that that velocity variable and doing, you know, like um, speed strength training or absolute speed training. And um, that kind of brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about is actually, well, first of all, if somebody reaches out to you and they don't have any injuries and they want to increase power, how do you assess which variable they need, whether the force variable or the velocity variable?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I think, and I love how this has turned into a philosophical podcast where these people philosophically have no injuries. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So I think when we get to this point, you know, let's say, you know, and we're, you know, mobility is good, no injury history, you know, this is where we start to look at, you know, what's, you know, we always look at the big three squat bench and deadlift you know, what What are your strengths and experiences in those areas? Uh, we look at both absolute and relative strength, you know, absolute being what's the total amount you can move and then, you know, relative being what is that relative to your body weight? Um, and then we're also going to look at those, you know, the vertical leap, we're going to look at the uh, upper body push power. One of the cool things that we can see on the force plates, particularly with the lower body, is we can look at, you know, static verticals versus counter movement jumps. So, you know, what's your, how high, you know, what's the difference, there's a elastic utilization ratios, but, you know, it's a fancy word for how much higher do you go when you get to, when you get to dip down and jump up versus if you got to start, you know, from a, almost like a quote unquote seated position. Um, So that's where we start getting in more. And, and that's the ex, kind of the exciting part of it, really diving in and figuring out what is the DNA of this person athletically. Um, Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You know, we've seen stuff where we had, We had 10 girls who swing over hundred miles an hour and half of them had back pain. And when you looked at their actual numbers, they all deadlifted absolute, absolute strength was all, they could all deadlift over 200 pounds, but the half that had back pain did not deadlift at least one and a half times body weight. And so one, and then once the strength goes up, all of a sudden magically back pain goes away. Right. So, you know, there's, but for the other ones, it was like, well, you're relatively strong enough and absolutely you're strong enough is there really any more benefit to continuing to get stronger (laughs) or just kind of stay here and we can focus on other areas. Maybe it's more speed, uh, and how quickly you produce the force, Right. And so that, that definitely is where some of the technology, uh, comes in in handy of being able to look at, you know, how quickly does somebody peak on a vertical move? Um, you know, looking at, um, yeah, that's where, you know, you get that person who's both absolutely strong and relatively strong velocity based training can certainly be helpful in, in those, in those instances. Um, so that's that's kind of the fun part when you get more into the deep science of it, um, but for most golfers out there, unfortunately, it's kind of pretty boring. Uh, if you got no injuries and you got no mobility, you probably are just weak.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on that note, let's get into the overspeed training. Speaking of injuries, um, <laughs> so the the people that do have a good amount of relative strength and wait, and- did you did you say people get hurt doing overspeed training? <laughs> really. <laughs> I've had a few I've had a few yeah message me not oh Oh, yeah I've never I've never heard of that that's weird yeah (laughs) Uh, so let's get into that a little bit now because that's one of the things that you know if somebody has come to me and they're well trained they have a good amount of strength and we're trying to convert that strength into speed we're kind of spending more time on that you know the velocity end of that spectrum working on the the speed strength working on absolute speed and that's where you know, medicine ball throws. I I do a lot with that. I do a lot of the overload swings um, and we do a lot of over speed swings,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but we have to be careful with that. And and this is where like some of the research you've done with this has been so helpful to, I mean, I hope everybody in this industry is listening to your research, um, but it's really helped us uh, at train fully is to be able to um, kind of confirm the thought that we had when trying to use overload and overspeed training because it comes from track and field, and you got to get that force stimulus and you got to get that speed stimulus just right. So I want you to talk about the weight of the club, why that's important, but also the volume and the load on the on the athletes because some of the protocols out there are just so excessive with how much they want the people swinging. So maybe get into that research now.
1: Yeah, so and we had a lot of the similar feelings on all that overspeed uh, kind of stuff when it came out in terms of the volume that people were being pushed to do. and um you know we always use the the topic I think of like a hundred meter sprinter and yeah, you know, do you ever see like like do you think like same bolt like was doing a hundred hundred meter sprints like 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 I'm pretty sure that was never in his daily training protocol once. never mind, like two to three times a week, right? but that's but that's basically when overspeed training was kind of coming out and becoming more popular. that's what that's what the protocols were um and so that's where we looked at hey this doesn't make any sense physiologically (laughs) you know and we had to you know we did we wrote I wrote a whole report and I went through all the research of different sports of baseball I went from baseball to cricket to like everywhere right and nowhere was there anyone who was doing that much volume of swings um and so that's you know then we said well you know let's design a study and let's take a look what if we cut it you know and down like to only cut it down 66 percent what if we only did like 30 swings um like what let's see what happens because there wasn't there was really there was no published research on overspeed training on protocol or anything like that you know there were a couple silos of people who claimed to have stuff that they wouldn't share so so we went and um and we looked at it and i mean lo and behold you can do 30 swings and get the same amount of output in terms of gains as when you do 100 swings um and you know thankfully uh, I don't think anybody's given us any credit, but a lot of the a lot of the protocols have come down, which is nice. Um, and that's good for you know just to share the information that golfers are getting some of the better information. Um, I still wish people would you know share a f- simple four rotational center screen with people. Um, we do it for free for anyone, but um if you do have the ability to rotate, you definitely don't need to be swinging hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, we're currently doing off the come out again when this studys done, we're looking at non-dominant size swings. Uh, and I can't say it looks really good at this point. Um, but you know, I think that's where, you know, we're just continually trying to ask why and, and say, well, let's prove to see if it works or not. And I think that's the cool things with overspeed is you literally can swing 30 times instead of hundred. You can do it twice a week. Um, and as long as you're, you're doing it the right way, you can see some pretty cool results. You know, if you're, if it's done the right way with the right
0: person at the right time. So then, let's get into the weight of the club now, because uh, just for the listeners, like when when overspeed training is done, say with cla- with uh, track and field, and actually we talked about this with Sasha McKenzie, but just for the people who maybe didn't hear the episode, if you're doing overload training, the person is in track and field, they're they're towing a sled, and the weight of the sled is not just some standard weight; it's determined by how much the runner slows down when they tow the sled. They, they generally don't want the sprinter to slow down by more than 10% when they're towing the sled. And then the same with, with the, with the overspeed. Now they're getting actually towed. Like they have an elastic band or a machine tow them when they're doing the overspeed training in, in track and field. We don't have that in golf. But my point is that with the overspeed training, they don't want to get faster by more than 10%. They kind of want to stay in this Goldilocks zone to get that stimulus just right. So then what did you find? Because you actually looked at that to see what the different clubs did to the golfer's speed and, and what did you find?
1: Yeah, so when we looked at it, so we used the, um, the super speed stick. So I, I believe the heavy stick is about, or sorry, the light stick is like 20% lighter. Uh, the blue stick's about 5% lighter than a standard driver. And uh, the red stick, I think it was 5 or 10% heavier. Um, we actually had measured out the grams they were not consistent all the time but generally that's where it came to and um basically what we found is if somebody's swinging an implement that's too light so like that super light club kinematically so we looked at it we did everything tested on k-vest and you know all that sort of stuff and i mean the upper body just runs wild it's like the totally wrong sequence your hands yeah your hands move fast but it's totally wrong sequence and um and we had a group that only utilized just the light stick and they got slower and then we had a group that used the heavier stick, and when you use that, and we were talking before and we jumped on here recording, it actually increases x factors pretty significantly, where you see a lot more separation. Uh, unfortunately, it was the heavier stick. If you, we had another group who only did the heavy stick, and they got slower as well too. The groups uh, who used the middle stick, or that like five five percent lighter, so it's very close to the actual weight of the implement, um, they got faster. As did the group who did all three sticks. So there, but statistically speaking, there was no difference if you just use one versus all three. Um, we then did a follow-up study where we took out the the light and the heavy, so we only used a lot. We so we basically just wanted more numbers to increase sample size, and we relooked at just the five percent lighter stick versus all three. And again, there's statistically no difference in club head speed gains, uh, you know, between the two groups. We've continued since that was 2019, so probably like that last two years we've been continuing in house. Um, and I will say when sticks break, we don't tend to replace them. Uh, um, <laughs> so we, you know, we really are kind of just having people, you know, you can use your driver pretty much. If you really want something five percent, you can go to like a five wood is typically pretty close to the driver. Um, and you know particularly now that we have force plates, we're going to look at you know, kinetic outputs as well as how you know impacts and kin- kinematics and the actual launch monitor and speeds. There's really there's no big difference. Uh, that we see, um, you know, but so you can do a lot less volume, like sixty-six percent less volume. So you can do thirty swings, <laughs> and you can really just use your driver
0: or something just a little bit lighter, uh, and you're going to get pretty solid results. And that's what uh, Dan Koglin the head of strength and conditioning on the European Tour, the DP Tour, now I guess yeah. uh, that's what he said too. He said recommended treating it like five sets of five with with either your driver or your five wood, and do that twice a week. And and he they get really good results with that and he said even just use, use the ball as well and learn about the dispersion that you have with that speed um, yeah so there's
1: that's the other issue when you use sticks too right is the aerodynamics of it and you know i, I can't tell any people they're like oh i got the stick up to 130 and you're like cool what's your driver doing still yeah. the same yeah. okay <laughs> um so yeah there's definitely a difference between dry swings and actually you know hitting a hitting a golf ball as well
0: this has been awesome, man. I, I appreciate you coming on. For the people listening, uh, where can they like where can they find you and, and tell us about your facility? And you guys do online stuff now too, is that right?
1: Yeah, we do. So you know, basically, they you know, like the best place to find us would be um, you know, obviously our website par dot com, and we actually set up a, a page private for your for any of your listeners. Uh, so it's par dot com slash trainfully. Uh, they can grab go there they can you know the four rotational tests they can take that so they can see if they should be doing overspeed training or not um but you know they can grab that there we do a ton of online stuff at this point we've got people pretty much in every continent uh where people play golf um but um you know i think the the big thing of how we look at approaching that and working with people we do it all it's all custom we do it all one-on-one um, it's all based on science. And that's, I think that the reason why we've been successful virtually is because we take the data and we collect it and we say, Hey, this is where you're starting. We're going to implement, you know, program a that we decide is, you know, we put together for you based on what you got and the amount of time you got and what you need. And then we're going to retest in two weeks and we're going to see how's it getting, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? There's no guessing it's, you know, it's very much that got better. Okay. Let's adjust here. That needs more work. Let's adjust there. Right. Um, so yeah, so, uh, you know, if anyone wants to check us out, you know, parforsuccesscom slash trainfully, you guys can grab, you know, the free assessment, uh, on social, uh, YouTube, we do a ton of educational. So we release a new video every single week on different topics and diving into a lot of this. So a lot of our, we share a lot of the new findings that we have. Um, that's just all the handles just at par
0: for success. So, um, very easy to find us, uh, kind of anywhere. Awesome. And I appreciate all the work you guys do, all, all the evidence-based research you do. It's been a big, impact on, on how I approach a lot of my programming. And I know a lot of people in the industry uh, appreciate it as well. So thank you for your research, Chris, and, and thank you for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Thomas. We'll, uh, we'll have to come back on. When we get a, uh, within the new year, we'll have a ton of new ground, ground reaction force stuff and the uh, non-dominant side training. We got a, a lot of stuff coming in the pipeline. So it'll be fun to share with, with your listeners. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, buddy. For sure.